I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Brianna Draxler. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, February 21st, 2012. Coming up, the byproducts of drilling for natural gas. Where things can escape that you're not aware of. And using satellites to track the melting of the cryosphere. a look at some of the recent news in science. Researchers at the Georgia Institute of Technology are finding ways to put the strongest muscle in our body to use for more than just mastication. Our tongues allow us to taste, swallow, and talk, and now a group of devices called the Tongue Drive System can be used by people with high-level spinal cord injuries to navigate the world, both physically and virtually, with their tongues. The primary hardware for the tongue drive system is a plate about twice the size of a quarter that fits into the mouth on a dental retainer. Magnetic sensors on the plate's four corners read signals from a tiny magnet attached to the user's tongue. The device then interacts wirelessly with devices such as iPods and iPhones. These devices replace joysticks for driving electric wheelchairs and can control cursors for computer use. The tongue drive system is still in the development phase and is being tested at the Atlanta-based Shepherd Center and the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago. Early results show participants are able to move a computer cursor more quickly and with more accuracy than through other methods, and that users are able to steer through an obstacle course faster with fewer collisions. And, unlike previous methods, the tongue drive system can be trained with as many commands as a user can easily remember, all through a flick of the tongue. The avocado has long been touted as a superfood. Now it may have another health benefit, killing super bacteria. Yellow staphylococci is the most common bacteria linked to post-operation infections in hospitals. Staph infections can be life-threatening, and are becoming more and more resistant to the antibiotic, antibiotics used to treat them. Jess Gitz Haller, a young Danish scientist at the University of Copenhagen, found that the leaves of the Chilean avocado plant can actually overcome the bacteria's resistance. Antibiotic-resistant bacteria have developed a pump that flushes antibiotics out of the bacterial cell before they can take effect. The avo avocado leaf breaks down this defense by turning off the pump and allowing the antibiotics to do their job. In Chile, these leaves are used by the Mapuche people to heal wounds. Haller says he hopes to produce a synthetic version of the chemical compound in order to protect the rainforest resources and improve the chemical's effectiveness. The researchers have signed an agreement with the Chilean representative to ensure that commercialization of the leaf will benefit the local Mapuche people. Haller says this finding is particularly important because the drug industry doesn't invest in antibiotic research since it is too expensive relative to the potential profit. The results of the study were published in the Journal of Antimicrobial Chemotherapy in early February. It's getting closer to gardening season, and most gardeners will count themselves lucky if seeds they've stored in a cold outdoor shed will still sprout once the soil warms up. So, consider the announcement yesterday that scientists have revived a flowering plant from 30,000-year-old fruit tissues buried in Siberian ice. 
Scientists have previously revived simpler organisms from permafrost, which is a layer of ice several hundred meters deep and covering nearly 20% of the Earth's surface. Until recently, however, viable remains of flowering plants had not been found. For the flowering plant that the Moscow scientist David Gilchinsky and his colleagues have revived, they can thank a ground squirrel because 30,000 years ago on the banks of a river in what is now northeastern Siberia, that squirrel buried fruits and seeds of the Pleistocene Age herbaceous flowering plant Silene stenophylla. The scientists found these seeds by digging down 38 meters, that's around 100 feet, through the permafrost to find the fruits and seeds, which were carbon dated to being 30,000 years old. Through tissue culture and micropropagation, the authors regenerated fertile silene plants from the placental tissues of the disinterred fruits and transplanted the seeds into pots in the laboratory, where, a year later, they blossomed, bore fruit, and set seed. The authors report that the plant from 30,000 years ago looks a little different from silene stenophylla plants of today. According to the authors, permafrost sediments might represent a rich source of wild plant species and ancient gene pools long believed to have gone extinct. As for what that 30,000-year-old plant looks like, it offers delicate white flowers with five petals each. And thanks to KGNU's Maeve Conran for her Monday interview with Rocky Mountain Peace and Justice member Leroy Moore regarding the findings of plutonium still in soils near Rocky Flats. We're approaching the one-year anniversary of the Fukushima nuclear power plant disaster in Japan. So mark your calendars for March 13th, when here at How on Earth, we'll offer a special comprehensive look at the future of nuclear power. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Last month, President Obama praised natural gas as a clean-burning fuel that we should be using and drilling for far more often. And it's true that natural gas, which is made mostly of methane, does burn cleaner than coal, and it gives off less carbon dioxide. But a new study from CU Boulder and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration indicates that drilling and producing natural gas causes an even more potent greenhouse gas to leak into the atmosphere at levels that are twice as high as current official estimates. As a greenhouse gas, methane is 20 times more potent than carbon dioxide, so even a small amount of methane leakage can create a big problem. To measure the extent of these leaks, a team led by Gabriel Patron, monitored air quality at a 300-meter tower that NOAA maintains in its global network of air quality towers. This particular tower happens to be near the Colorado town of Erie in the oil-rich Denver-Julesburg Basin. That basin has 20,000 natural gas wells, and that tower revealed unusually high levels of methane with a chemical fingerprint that confirmed that the methane was coming from drilling operations. For more, let's listen in as How on Earth's Shelley Schlender talks with one of the scientists who authored the new report, Greg Frost. 
We found a range of somewhere between 2 and 8% leakage rate of methane from production uh, of natural gas in the Denver-Julesburg Basin. What had been the estimate before your information came out? So official estimates were something slightly less than 2%. That looks like that's about the low end of our range from the information that we had available to us. Now, we hadn't really set out to find all these things that we did find, but it was rather we had the resources. We had a little bit of resources available. We had instruments available. You just happened to have this tower that you put next to what happens to be a fairly large group of natural gas wells. Uh, so the tower there was put in place for different reasons than to look at oil and gas. It's part of a larger monitoring network that NOAA operates across the world, in fact, to measure greenhouse gases all over the world and understand how they're changing over time. The strategy lately has been to put these towers now in the United States, and they're a bit closer to the sources than the previous stations had been. And so, yes, there is, it's more complicated to understand what they're telling us. And that's part of why we then went out and went and measured with a mobile vehicle to try to understand better, well, what is it that this tower that is sitting there measuring lots of things, what is it really measuring, you know, and why is it measuring what it's measuring? Well, you just described two ways to continue the research. One is to put more towers up in different places, and the other is to go out with mobile vehicle sniffers that can sniff the air. Does everybody agree with how you arrived at these measurements, or is this being hotly contested right now? (laughs) Hotly, I don't know if that's the right adjective. Uh, They've now been published in a a peer-reviewed journal article. So we had three expert reviewers on that journal article. We had a number of colleagues who read and reviewed our methods. So there's scientific validity there. What are the oil industry scientists saying about your measurements? Well, um, they want to know more. um, And I should say that we had to have help from the oil industry to derive our final results that we did get because we didn't measure all the details that we needed just from our atmospheric observations alone. Now, one thing that we are doing currently is uh, the same, a lot of the same scientists were involved in a study now in Utah, in the Uinta Basin there, another fossil fuel basin. And we're doing similar kinds of measurements with these mobile vehicles, um, detecting a lot more compounds. We also have an aircraft there, a small aircraft that's making measurements. And actually that small aircraft sampling will allow us to get a more direct number for the methane emissions and other emissions uh, without the use of some of this information from the inventories. And we plan to repeat that aircraft study out here in Colorado later on this spring. Is there any way to have a natural gas well be sealed up better so it doesn't leak so much methane? I think that there is an attempt in the industry and and a lot of work in the industry to do what they call green completion. If you're the industry, you don't want to leak out natural gas. That's your product. That's what you're selling. It's to your advantage as well to capture as much as you possibly can because otherwise you're losing profits. But can they do it? I'm not an an engineer. I'm not an oil industry expert. But I, I think that from what I've seen, they can probably do more to try to capture these leaks. The problem has been that there's probably not necessarily an awareness of how big these leaks might have been. It was only by doing this independent sort of study that we can kind of understand how far off our previous estimates might have been. And so the industry has been saying, hey, no big deal, less than 2% of leakage of methane into the air. And that was the very bottom of the numbers that you found, your numbers basically went up more than four times as high as what the industry numbers are. And we've got a lot of these natural gas wells that need to be checked, right. and nobody's been checking them, really. Perhaps part of the problem is it's harder to check these than you might think, because, you know, in the Denver-Julesburg Basin, I think there's 20,000 such wells. 20,000. There's a lot. There's a lot of wells out there. And, um, and what happens after a well is retired? It can still leak, 
unless you know you take precautions against that sure that's right and there's many 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 miles of, of pipes and lots and lots of valves and lots of components and, and processing plants etc that's right one leaky pipe on the way from one well to wherever it's going mm-hmm. There's a lot of ways methane can leak. Even if your intentions are the best and you try to capture um, these emissions the best you can, there's a lot to try to control. There's a lot There's a lot of places where things can escape that you're not aware of. So, so I think what we're doing is trying to help industry. And I think, and I should also point out, we couldn't, again, we couldn't have done this study without the help of industry because we needed some of the information they could provide. And... I should also point out they're helping to to fund the work that we're doing in Utah. That's it's a consortium of federal government money and money that's coming from the states and and money that's coming from the industry, frankly. So, and they have been helpful. They've let us go and sample at various facilities and they've shown us around. They've really tried to help make sure that we understand how they do what they do. All right, so you're saying that they are worse than people expected these leaks and the implications are worse. You think there's a possibility with much stricter regulation that we may be able to reduce these leaks a great deal. Well, what about fracking? Because fracking, it means a lot more cracks in the earth, a lot more ways that things can seep out. Mm -hmm. That seems to me like it might be a little bit more complicated yet. We don't have a lot of information on on that specific issue, and I, I, I wouldn't want to say too much more other than that. Well, it sounds like the good news, the silver lining in this is that there is a recognition that this needs to be studied a lot more because this is a major issue. That, that I can whole, wholeheartedly agree with. This one study, again, this study of really opportunity of almost by accident that we've started to do this work. And, um, and I think that there's going to be a lot of societal benefit from that. Thanks to Shelley Schlender for that report. She's been speaking with Greg Frost about a new study which is being published by the Journal of Geophysical Research. The study indicates that natural gas drilling creates a higher amount of methane leakage into the atmosphere than previous estimates had indicated. Methane is a potent greenhouse gas, and unless the problem of leakage is solved, there is concern that drilling for natural gas might cause higher levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere than burning coal. You can hear an extended version of this interview on our website, howonearthradio.org. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Brianna Draxler. In case you're wondering what that sound was, it's artist Katie Patterson who captured the sounds of melting glaciers on three records made from their meltwater. She then played the records together until they melted. Which brings us to our next feature. Scientists at CU's Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research now have a clearer picture of how climate change is impacting the cryosphere, or ice-covered parts of the planet. The researchers used eight years' worth of satellite data to assess the Earth's glaciers, ice caps, and ice sheets. Knowing how much ice has been lost during this time can help scientists understand how melting ice might contribute to sea level rise both now and in the future. But there have been conflicting stories in the press about how the results should be interpreted. Ted Pfeffer is one of the study's co-authors, and he joins us today to discuss what's really happening to the Earth's ice. Welcome to the studio, Ted. Thank you. So what is unique about your study? The main difference between this study and many other studies that have tried to do the same thing, which is essentially to measure how much 
land ice. So this is glaciers, ice caps, ice sheets. How much land ice is going into the ocean is that this is the first time that we've really used the same tool to measure everything at once. All the small glaciers, all the big glaciers, all the ice sheets going into the ocean. In the past, one measurement method has been used for the glaciers, another measurement method for the ice sheets, and so it's been a little bit difficult to compare the numbers. But in this one, we've used the same method for everything, which creates a, a substantially more reliable measurement. And that method you're using now is satellites, correct? This is the, the GRACE gravity satellite system, yeah. And what does GRACE stand for? It's the gravity recovery experiment. Um, what it consists of is two satellites that chase each other around the Earth. They, they orbit at about 500 kilometers above the Earth's surface, and they're separated by about 220 kilometers. And they've got a device for measuring the distance between them very, very precisely to within about a micron, or about, um, I'm, I'm sorry, about a uh, 10 microns, and that's about the tenth the diameter of a human hair. Wow. And what they do is... They, what, they, what they end up doing is measuring the force of the Earth's gravitational field, which varies from one point to another on the Earth's surface because the amount of mass which is directly underneath the satellite changes. Imagine, for example, that you're passing over a mountain range. So there's more mass, as, there's more mass beneath the satellite as it passes over. So as those two satellites approach, the first satellite that approaches that mountain feels the tug of that mountain. And so it speeds up a little bit and it gets ahead of the satellite and back. And this very sensitive ranging device measures the fact that the, the satellites are separating a bit. And then as this rear satellite approaches, it also speeds up and so the distance between them shrinks. And then as the leading satellite gets away from the mountain, it slows down and this, the distance between them shrinks, and then as the rear satellite passes the mountain, it slows down too. And so the, the pattern of speeding up and slowing down is recorded by this ranging device. And you don't get a measure of the absolute amount of mass, but you get a very sensitive measure of the change in mass by going back and measuring the pattern of mass over and over again. And these satellites make a circuit around the Earth about 15 times per day in, a, in, a, in an orbit that wraps around the Earth like, like, like yarn going around the ball of yarn. So we get quite complete coverage of the Earth. And this is, it's sensitive enough that we can actually measure things like changes in soil water content from one season to another. It's very, very sensitive. And so we use it to measure changes in shrinking ice sheets, shrinking glaciers, changing groundwater, but it also measures many other things that we have to, we have to comb out in the analysis. Okay, so you were able to use these satellites to measure glaciers, ice caps, ice sheets, all together in one picture. And what did that picture look like? Did it change previous understandings of, of the ice on the Earth? It did. We, uh, one of the main things that is different in our study is that we discovered that the, the, the glacier portion of 
the world's land ice, so this is everything exclusive of the ice sheets, is losing mass somewhat less rapidly than we thought. And pre- previously, actually, glaciers have been the, the, the leading loss term. It seems to be a little bit less now. What, what we see is that the, the glaciers are losing about four-tenths of a millimeter per year if you think of it in terms of how much they're adding to sea level. And the ice sheets, together with all of the glaciers that surround the ice sheets, because the Grace Gravity System can't, it can't see very small objects um, individually. It's, it's like its, its vision is, is slightly blurry. About a millimeter per year of sea level is coming from the ice sheets plus the glaciers surrounding the ice sheets. Um, so the the balance between the glaciers and the ice sheets is is somewhat different than we thought before. Okay, so essentially, glaciers, ice caps, and ice sheets are reacting differently to climate change. How does that come into play? They are uh, the the glaciers can respond faster to climate change because they're smaller, and they are uh, they're they're more variable in time. Right now, they have they have slowed down a bit from the five measurements five years ago, they may speed up again in the future. It's one of the problems with the kind of measurements that we're making right now is that it's difficult to know how to use these to project forward into the future. We can't simply take these numbers and say, well, we'll, we'll take this, this rate that we observe now and we'll just extrapolate into the future. It's much more complicated than that. We really have to understand the physics. So it's good for setting a baseline, but not necessarily making predictions. Right. It's our starting point, but we really have to look into the details of how the system works to project into the future. And grace by itself doesn't tell us that. We really have to do more work on the ground to understand the mechanisms of how these systems change. And one of the major things people focused on, um, in the media anyways, was the glaciers in the Himalayas. Mm-hmm. What exactly was happening there? How did that change previous thoughts? What we discovered was that the rate of loss in the Himalayas is much less than we had thought before. And it's a very, very complicated picture there, um, in large part because we simply don't have very much information. It's a big place. There aren't very many measurements. And it's uh, difficult to get new measurements. Using the GRACE gravity system, we have to somehow comb out the mass which is being lost by glaciers melting and the mass which is being lost by removing groundwater for irrigation. And that's complex. Yeah, it's a tricky situation. Thanks to Tad Pfeffer of the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research for that State of the Cryosphere address. We've been talking with Tad about the effects of climate change on the Earth's ice and how it can contribute to sea level rise. You can read the results of his recent study online in the February 8th issue of Nature. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Shelley Schlender. This week's show was produced by Joel Parker and was engineered by Jim Pullen and Shelley Schlender. Additional contributions by Beth Bartell. A theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Mason Williams with Mannheim Steamroller and from Katie Patterson. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Joel Parker. 